Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I would draw your attention to the book of Exodus, chapter 11. As we come now to the end, I think, of maybe the first phase of the, the book of Exodus, uh, or at least the beginning of the end of that in the next few chapters, dealing with the final plague and then Israel going out. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Exodus chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open up your word to us. That in your word, we would find your will. We would find a description of who you are and what you have done for us. That we might give you all the honor and the glory. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we come here in chapter 11 in Exodus to a kind of event. And it's a kind of event that I think resonates with all of us. From kids, to young couples, to those who are seasoned with years. We come to a point in time in an event in which the time has come. Now, you know what that's like. When you anticipate something coming, perhaps it's your birthday or Christmas or a vacation or some event that you are just waiting for. Perhaps you even get a calendar out and mark down the days until it arrives. And then when it comes, it's almost like you can't believe it's here. That's where we are now 
in the book of Exodus. The anticipation that has been building is being fulfilled. The epic battle between the Lord God and the idols of Egypt is being concluded. And so in this chapter 11 of the book of Exodus, I would like us to see three things this evening. First, in verses 1 through 3, we see God preparing His mercy. Then, in verses 4 through 8, we see God preparing His judgment. And then finally, in verses 9 and 10, we see God preparing His glory. God preparing His mercy, God preparing His judgment, and God preparing His glory. Let's begin then by looking at the start of this chapter where we read, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Now, as we see what's going on or read what's going on in this chapter, there is some sense in which it can be confusing because where we left off in chapter 10 was Moses telling Pharaoh, You don't want to see me anymore. That's fine. You won't see me anymore. And then it appears that there's this continuing dialogue, and we wonder, what's going on? Is Moses come back, say, oh, wait, I forgot, here's a postscript. No, I don't think that's what's going on. I think this is an intentional setting off by God of an interlude within chapter 10. And the reason why it's set off after in its own chapter is God wants to highlight this for us. And so this is actually happening if you can picture the scene in your mind, with Pharaoh being obstinate against Moses while he stands in the pitch black dark of the ninth plague of darkness. Now, this is the last plague. It is the last plague by design. If we were to go through and analyze all of the plagues, we've looked a bit at this, but I want to remind you, the plagues generally come in cycles of three. There are plagues 1 through 3, 4 through 6, and 7 through 9. And there are similarities that we could see in the progression of the the first, the second, and the third plagues within those cycles. Now, you have all heard me say that math is not my favorite thing in the world. But I can do 3 times 3. And it's 9, not 10. Right? And so these cycles now have gone their course, and now we have this tenth plague set apart. It is designed as the last plague by God. It is not as if somehow God has failed. It's not as if He's going to plan B. This has been His design. It would culminate in this plague. There are no more ifs. It is now when. When Pharaoh will let the Israelites go. When Pharaoh will be humbled by God. This is the culmination of this battle. And one of the reasons that we can see this is, in interestingly enough, the word plague that's used in verse 1. Now, you would think that this is a common word. We've been reading about the ten plagues for chapter upon chapter. But the interesting note is that this is a unique word for plague, not used typically earlier in Exodus. It is a word here that means a blow or a mark. It's the kind of idea that you would have that if someone hit someone, they would leave a red welt. Or maybe even worse, a bruise would begin to form. 
It's a blow that leaves a mark. And it is only here that it is used in Exodus. Interestingly enough, the place that it is used most often is the book of Leviticus. Almost 90 times this word is used in the book of Leviticus. And you may wonder, well, why is that? Well, in Leviticus chapter 13 alone, it's used many, many times to describe the mark of leprosy. Something that is left behind, that is noticeable. This is a plague that will be seen and noticed. And perhaps even more interestingly, the other place where this word is used is in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 8. That famous text that tells us that for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Same word. We might not think that stricken is the same as plague, but it's the same Hebrew word. And so, of course, there is an identification there. Isaiah is talking about the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ being stricken for us. And we have been saying over and over again as we've going through Exodus that Exodus is the great foreshadowing drama of redemption. It is the type of redemption that we will experience upon the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The the enslavement to the Egyptians is like our enslavement to sin. The freeing, the redemption that we find in the Lord God in Exodus is like the redemption that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this plague is distinct from all of the others. It is announced beforehand, not just that the plague will come, but that its success is announced beforehand. And so there is also, you will note, interestingly enough, no mediating act at all. If we were to go through the other plagues, we would read that Moses put down his staff or raised his hands or called out to the Lord or Aaron did such and such. Here there is none of that. There is just God acting in all of his sovereign mercy. And the victory here is to be complete. God doesn't need a cleanup action. He will drive out the Israelites out of Egypt. And again here, the Hebrew language is very uh, intensive and marked. You may have heard me remark before that the way that Hebrew intensifies something is by repeating the word. And that's what we have here. We have in the text, they will drive out, drive out. And so we could translate it, and some translations do. They will surely drive out Israel. There is certainty to the victory. And then, of course, look at the end of verse 1. He will drive you away completely. There's no compromise here. There's no just the men. There's no just the adults. There's no leave the cattle behind. No, this is the complete victory of the Lord God being announced. This is God preparing His mercy for His people. And this mercy is seen in the favor that God shows to His people. We see this in verse 2. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. So Moses is now to address the people of Israel. And interestingly enough, this is the first time in the plagues, during the plagues, that Moses speaks to the Israelites. Now, put yourself in the place of an Israelite. You hear that the Nile has been turned into blood. And you think, pack your bags, we're on our way out, 
right? Except not. And then you hear that frogs are all over Egypt, even in the Pharaoh's bed, and you think, surely we're going to go now. Except for you don't. And over and over again we see this. Hail comes from heaven and destroys the livestock of the Egyptians, and you think, surely we'll be freed now. But you're not. And this happens over and over and over again. <clears throat> now you can imagine that what would come to the people of Israel would be discouragement. It's almost like you might think by the time of the 7th or 8th or ninth plague, you think, well, we've seen this story before. It's not going to work. It hasn't worked the first six times. What makes us think it's going to work now? You might be discouraged. Think that God is not at work, that He's not able. And, and this often happens to us, doesn't it? When things don't go our way, we tend to doubt God. When life doesn't happen the way we want it to happen, we tend to think somehow God has given up on us or forgotten about us. And I think part of this story here is to remind us that God is at work, that His timetable is not our timetable, but His mercy is sure. And so God wants not just Moses to know that the time is drawing to an end, He wants the people of Israel to know this as well. And so God tells Moses to give perhaps the most unlikely piece of advice to the Israelites. He says, go and ask your neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. Now again, remember the context here. What he's saying is to, uh, to Josiah or Uriah or um, Mary or Hannah, go to your neighbor, you know, the one that has had the frogs in the house. The one that because of the people of Israel have had their cattle killed. The one that have seen darkness envelop the land. Go ask them for stuff. Now, could you imagine a less likely piece of advice to succeed? It really shows us the sovereignty of God. Because we often think in order for us to find favor in the sight of our neighbors, in order for us to find an opening for the gospel, everything has to be just perfect. We have to arrange things, or we ask God to arrange things so that there'll be a smooth and easy opening because that's the only way someone will listen to us. Well, God has arranged it here that you can't imagine a situation where the Egyptians would have been more miserable with or angry at the Israelites than they are right now. And yet, God tells them to go and to ask. And this is what is often referred to as the plundering of Egypt. They go and they ask for all of the valuable goods. Now, this makes sense because who plunders in a conflict? It's the victors, right? It's those who win. So what God is telling them is, I have won. The spoils are yours. And this is, I think, a fulfillment of what God promised in Genesis chapter 15, where he told Abraham, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. Now, if you would have asked the Israelites, can God fulfill this promise? They would have said, we'd be happy if we get out with the clothes on our backs. Do you see how God fills His promises beyond our wildest expectations? That He's faithful to His Word even when we doubt His Word? That's what God does here. It also reminds us that we cannot fall to the temptation 
to put aside the ways of God for our own ways. I tend to think that we would be tempted if we were sitting in that meeting with Moses and the Israelites to say, well, let's not go to the neighbors now here first. Maybe this week we go, we take them a nice pie, we tell them we're sorry for their loss, we try to encourage them, we could babysit their kids, let's try to build up a relationship, let's try to get more in their favor. Then maybe, and let's not ask for gold or silver, let's ask, you know, maybe they've got some nice wood things or some iron things. Let's not overplay the ask here. You see, that's what we would say. But God says, no, I'm in charge. I've won the victory. The spoils are ours. And God calls us here to walk by faith, not by sight. Not by circumstances, not by what we believe is possible, but by what He has decreed. Now, I think there's one last final thing that's interesting here about this. And that is it reminds us that things can be used for good or for bad. Money is not bad. The love of money is the root of evil, not money. Cars are not bad. Homes are not bad. And we see that exactly here. How do we know this? Well, in Exodus chapter 32, verses 2 and 3, we read that some of these gold and silver pieces of jewelry were used to construct the golden calf. But then we also read in Exodus chapter 35 that some of these pieces of jewelry were used to construct the items of the tabernacle. So it's not that the items are bad. It's how they're used. It's the heart behind the use of the items. So remember that as you think about your own possessions. Having possessions is not bad. But check your heart as to how you use the things that God has put into your possession. This is God preparing His mercy. The second thing we see, beginning in verse 8, is God preparing His judgment for the Egyptians. Look at verse 4. For Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Now notice the time that this is happening. It's happening in the middle of the night. Now why is this? Now, we might think just naturally that things are scarier in the middle of the night. And we're always afraid of something that might happen in the middle of the night more than in the middle of the day. A noise that sounds perfectly normal at 11.30 in the morning can be terrifying at 2.30 a.m., right? But I think there's something else going on here. It's especially a time of fear in Egypt because you may recall that the main idol of Egypt was Ra, the sun god. And so this is a period of time in which the Egyptians are acknowledging that their God is incapable of protecting them because he's nowhere to be found. They worship a God who can't protect them for hours of the day. And God is pointing that out, that he is God 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. He's able to protect his people where the idols are not. And so, what God says is, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. It's as if God is saying to Pharaoh, you won't let my people go out? Well, guess what? I'm coming in. I'm coming in, in judgment. And this judgment is horrific. It is the death 
of all of the firstborn. Now this is an especially grave judgment. Death itself is a grave judgment. But there is something to this that we've, I think, kind of lost a bit in our culture. There is something about the firstborn in that culture and throughout most of history that is significant. The firstborn child is one who is on some level a bit special because it's the first child. And in, in areas of monarchy and hierarchy, usually the first son is the one who inherits. And, and we see this. I mean, you just know this naturally as parents. You know, the firstborn is always different. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I bet that you have. You know, when our firstborn was born and, and the first time that he was pretty significantly sick, we were concerned and we, we took him to the emergency room. And that was, I think, one of the most horrific experiences of my life, watching them poke and prod him while I could do nothing. And we spent all kinds of time and were tired. And it turned out in the end that it was nothing really that grave and we didn't need to do that. Well, then by the time you get to child number two, you say, well, you know, I really don't want to go through that again. By the time you get to three or four, you're like, can you sit up in bed? You're fine. <laughs> right? I mean, you've just become more experienced. And so this is how we live. There is a distinctness to the firstborn, not even because of the value of the firstborn, but because of the way that our inexperience interacts with them. There's something special in that fashion. And so this horrific judgment comes upon the firstborn, and it is all-encompassing. This is a, a, a way of speaking called a merism. I spoke to the ladies about this in the Psalms. It's a way of talking about from beginning to end. We use it in this kind of parlance, dinner from soup to nuts, from the beginning to the end. And so that's what is done here in Exodus. From the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the female slave, not the top of the slave chart, but the bottom, everyone in between, that judgment will be visited upon. And the judgment even comes on the animals of Egypt. When the text says that it will even come upon the cattle, you have to understand that that word for cattle is also used as a word generically for animals. It's not just that God hates cows. It's that this judgment is coming upon all of the animals, the livestock of Egypt. And so the effect of this judgment is seen in the reaction of the Egyptians. There shall be, in verse 6, a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. This is completely unique, God is telling us. Not just that you've never seen it before, you'll never see it again. Now, in a sense, this parallels the cry of Israel out to God in chapter 2, verse 23, and in chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. Israel cried out because of their bondage. But there is a major difference here. When the Israelites cry out, what does the book of Exodus tell us? That God heard their cry. When the Egyptians cry out, who hears them? No one. For idols do not hear. They don't have ears. They're not alive. And so this tells us something naturally about people. When bad things happen to them, they cry out. But it tells us there is only worth in crying out to the living God. It doesn't help you to cry out to Mother Nature or to the sun or to the universe or to some false deity. That cry won't be heard. 
Because there's only one God that lives and hears. And that's the true God. The God of the Bible. The other thing we see that's an effect that happens here to the Egyptians is that they bow down. God makes Egypt submissive to him, to Moses, and the Israelites. Look at this in verse 8. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me. They will bow down before God, and they will be the ones making Israel leave. Do you see how there's almost a flip here? Israel's asking to leave, asking to leave, and Pharaoh's saying no, and now the Egyptians are saying, please, get out. Take my gold ring, get out. Take my necklace, be gone. You see, God has changed the entire landscape. He's changed the entire power structure of the universe, because that's what God can do. And so, God, our God, is one that we should always hope in. No matter what our circumstances look like, God is in control. The third thing that we see in verses 9 and 10 is that God prepares His glory in the midst of this situation. This plague, like the other plagues and this whole battle, is a direct attack on Pharaoh's sovereignty. Think about this. God has said that Pharaoh's servants will not bow down to him, but they will bow down to God. Now think about that in the context of how Pharaoh has acted. You remember when Moses first introduced Pharaoh to God, Pharaoh's response was, who is this God? And why should I pay any attention to him? Well, God's answering that question. God is the God of the universe. He is God Almighty, and you should pay attention to Him because of His authority over you, your lands, and your people. It's a direct attack upon Pharaoh's sovereignty in the sense that the Egyptians are plundered by Israel. Think about how unusual this would be as a historical event, that the slaves without an army would take all of the riches of the nation that they're in. It's as if they've won a massive battle with an army. It's a direct attack upon Pharaoh's sovereignty and his kingship by God. And we see that all of the previous plagues have built up to this. All of this has happened by God's design. Do not read the book of Exodus and think that God is trying to shoot every arrow out of his quiver and finally one sticks. No. God is very purposeful in each of these plagues. He has designed it for this moment to maximize the display of His glory. The final plague will show that it is God who affects the redemption. We'll see this in the coming chapters as we look at the Passover. It becomes obvious that God is the Redeemer, that God is the one who is in control of life and death. Now, this should not surprise us but it should inform us. If we think about how can God bring this about, how can he make the Egyptians give to the Israelites? How can he conquer Pharaoh without an army? How can he do these things? Let me ask you a different question. How can God bring you from death to life? Did you have anything to do with that? Was God waiting for you to take the first step? 
Was he waiting for you to accomplish something so that he could work his will? You know, there's a, a famous saying, and it's worth repeating, that you only contribute one thing to your salvation. And that's the sin that made it possible. God does everything else. God is in complete control of the heart, complete control of circumstances. If it's one thing that the book of Exodus shows us, it is that God is sovereign and in control. And by this we see that everything in the world, all, will glorify God. Even those who oppose God will bow before Him. You will either bow to Him or you will bend to Him in judgment. Now, all of us have people we know. Perhaps it's someone at work or someone at school or someone in our neighborhood or a family member who are just viciously against God. They don't want to hear any time you have a story about church or what you've been studying in the Bible. Or they, when you start talking, they say, stop with the Jesus stuff. There's no God. I don't want to hear about it. And we wonder, how will God ever reach someone like that? The book of Exodus tells us it is sure that they will be reached by God. They'll either be reached by His mercy or they'll be reached by His judgment. But there is none that can ignore God. Every knee shall bow, Paul tells us in the book of Philippians. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now think about that. Every without exception... And what it will, every tongue will confess is that Jesus, not that he exists, not that he's a good teacher, not that he's helpful, but that he is Lord. They will acknowledge that he is sovereign. And so what we see here, if I can put it this way, is that God has taken Pharaoh on a personal tour of hell. He's brought destruction. He's brought darkness. He's brought defeat. He's brought separation from God. He's showing Pharaoh his end. He's showing that God is, a, is the one to be reckoned with above all. Now, what does that mean then for you and for me? That tells us that there is no time like now to bow for God before God. You don't have a moment to waste. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to give your life to Christ. Now is the time to bow before the sovereign king of the universe and to experience his mercy and his grace, not his judgment. Because there really only are those two things. There's either mercy or there's judgment. So as we think about this text and conclude this evening, we have to remember that favor with God is the most important thing in our lives. It's not how much money you make. It's not how many kids you have. It's not how well behaved they are. It's not how many degrees you have. It's not how influential you are in your job. The most important thing in your life is to have favor with God. And the only way you can have favor with God is to be found in His Son. And if you are found in Jesus Christ, then you have all the favor with God than you could ever ask for. You experience all the blessings that have been showered upon Jesus in the heavenly places. That's the most important thing in your life. 
Secondly, we need to remember that judgment always awaits the disobedient. We never escape judgment. You can imagine, as each one of these plagues came to Pharaoh, after it was gone, he would say to himself, Whew, glad that's over. Over and over and over again, thinking, well, that's over now. I'm still around. I've survived. We know that the judgment of God will catch up with Pharaoh. That each of those plagues is not meant as a final judgment. It's meant as an opportunity for repentance and to show God's power. The last thing that I want you to think about is this. That God delivers in ways that we don't expect. I think if we were creating a movie of Exodus and we were trying to come up with a plot that would work, what we would have is we would have Moses leave Midian and go and hook up with the Ethiopians or the Assyrians or some other people who had a great army. And he would lead that army into Egypt and he would defeat the Egyptian army. Probably the penultimate scene would be Moses in hand-to-hand combat with Pharaoh, defeating him. And the great victory would come as the Israelites rise up as a fifth column from behind and they free themselves from the tyranny of Egypt and everyone would cheer. But that's exactly not how this happens. The Israelites are still slaves. They have no weapons. They have no ability. All of this is done from beginning to end by God. It's not how we would draw it up on the page. Now think about that as that applies to your life. Do you see God working that way in your life? Better yet, do you trust God to work that way in your life? Or are you concerned that you can't be delivered because you don't have the resources? Exodus tells us to trust God, that he's sovereign, and that just like he promised to the Israelites in Genesis 15, he's promised to his people that he would deliver them from sin, from death, and from Satan. Do you trust the Lord? His word in the New Testament is just as true as the word that came true here in the book of Exodus. It's the everlasting word of the one who cannot lie. Let's pray.